John 1. Thank you to each of you who have participated so far this morning. Every single time Brian opens that box, I go, what are you going to do with that, Brian? How's that going to work out? And I'm waiting for one of you pranksters, Leroy Gross, wherever you're at, to put a snake or something in there and see what that poor guy does. Thank you, uh, Joe and Ryan, uh, for helping out uh, through instrument this morning. Uh, Lorena, as always, thank you so much. And of course, Lori. Um, we are blessed to have good musicians and uh, who do a great work as we participate in worshiping in all different forms. And so now we're going to worship through the hearing and receiving of God's word. So John 1.14 is where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, there are two rules that I try to follow when it comes to preaching. Uh, there's two things that I try not to talk about. One is sports illustrations uh, because they're corny. I try to stay away from those. Uh, and the second thing is talking about the weather. Um, and, and I would like to break that second rule this morning. Um, last year, when I came to you, there's about that four or five month period where several of you were just worried about the Garza's like, this is really bad weather. Are they going to make it? And by comparison, this has been wonderful. That's polar opposite. This has been wonderful what we've experienced. And um, we may never leave just, just based on how how wonderful it has been over the last several weeks. And so uh, the, the truth is that's the way I feel for Justine. Uh, she has been mourning a little bit, her uh, just not having potentially a white Christmas. And however, though, as I have looked at the forecast, we might have, as we walk out of here this morning or over the course of the next 24 hours, some snow. So you will know uh, within the next 24 hours whether Aaron or Justine have had a better Christmas. And so there's certain expectations that we have. You know, Justine has had snow. We have uh, uh, expectations, their expectations when it comes to traditions that we have. Uh, perhaps for you, it's going to be whose house you're going to go to tonight. Uh, for us, we, uh, just a couple days ago, myself and the boys, we were going around our block and we were giving out Christmas, Christmas cookies that August and Justine had put together. And one of our neighbors right next door, Mark and Shar, said, so what, what kind of traditions do you have in your home? And I didn't have a great answer. I just said, um, we have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. It's, it's just survive right now. And so it's just, it, probably not a great answer, but that's what we have. And so, and, right. And so we're coming up with our traditions, coming up with our norms, our expectations. There's expectations that we do in church. You, you've, that what we've just been a part of over the last um, 25 minutes or so, these are the norms, this is what we do during this season. And of course, when we're in the season, we talk about the incarnation. That always comes up. The incarnation of our Lord. Perhaps when I say the word incarnation for you, you go, okay, I know that's an important word that I should know, uh, but it doesn't stir up your, your soul with a passion. Or you go, I've heard about the incarnation every single winter season during Christmas, and it just doesn't get me dialed up. And if that's you... Um, here's what I want to say. My hope is that by the time we're done this morning, you will know what that word incarnation means, but not just know it, but you will know what it means for you, and it'll speak to each of our souls. And so we're in John 1 today, and 
Uh, if you have been with us up until this point, we've done a couple of messages out of the first two sections of John. Uh, we've seen that in John 1.1, 1, 1, if you look at your Bible right in front of you, uh, there was the Word. And, and John 1.1 1, 1 compares to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we are told that there was another, that there is distinction within God, that there is the Word who is God, but He's also with God. And, and as you go further on, we are introduced to, the, uh, we're introduced to John the Baptist. We're then introduced to the fact that the Word isn't just the Word. He's also called the true light. And you and I, what we saw last week, have a decision to make. We will either be like the Pharisees who are in the proximity of the true light and yet don't let it shine our, our souls and we reject the Lord, or we will be like those who receive the true light and by receiving it, we have a life in His name and we are those who believe and are also born again. And so, also last week, we used an illustration uh, from C.S. Lewis. By the way, I try not to let you know all the time that I am using C.S. Lewis quotes, and I'll say, there's an author who says, I'm just trying not to let you know, it's, it is still probably nine times out of ten, C.S. Lewis. And so, C.S. Lewis uses that illustration where he talks about um, Hamlet, and he talks about how if Hamlet is ever going to know who Shakespeare is, the character in the story or in the play versus the author of the play himself, Shakespeare must write himself into the story, right? That's the only way that Hamlet can know. And so in the same way, it's a great illustration, a comparison for you and I. The only way that you and I can know who the Lord is, is if he writes it himself into the story and he steps over that solid line of creation and the creator steps into his own creation. And so that question, though, that we've been knocking on the door of, of how does that all work itself out? How does God write himself into the story? The answer comes in verse 14, and that's what we've been waiting for. And so I want to read, we're going to focus on verse 14 this morning, but we're going to go all the way through verse 18 now. Let me read for us. Here we go. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son. Your version may say only Son. We'll come back to this. The only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about Him and cried out, this was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth though came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Our typical practice, you know this on Sunday mornings when we walk through passages, as we walk through a whole section uh, of, of text together, uh, we're going to follow the lead of the Prince of Preachers, not at all saying that that is me, but that would be Charles Spurgeon. And what he would do is he would take just one verse at a time and zoom in on it. So what I want to do right now is follow his lead, and we're going to zoom in 
just for the remainder of our time on that first verse, verse 14, and then we'll consider the rest tonight at our evening service. The Word that became flesh, the Son that has drawn near, and what it means to encounter His glory. Let me pray. Father, You are in heaven, we are on earth, and yet You have set the, sent the Son to us so that we could know You. Lord, our prayer now is that You would take for some of us what may be common, and You would make it profound. You would take what is new for some of us, and You would penetrate our heart for the first time through what You have to say through Your Word this morning. But I pray, Lord, as we consider this word incarnation, oh Lord, let the manger take us straight to the cross. And from the cross, Lord, let it change how we live as we go out from here. I pray these things in your name. Amen. And so the first part of the verse, the word became flesh. Word. The first time we encountered this, I just mentioned this a moment ago, that word, word, was in verse 1. And this will be the last time in the Gospel of John that John will use this title for the second person of the Godhead and call him Word. Something that has so struck me and that has so fascinated me is that when I read the Old Testament, as I've been reading this year, and I hope as you've been reading your Bible, you've encountered some of the same things, is that when God chooses to reveal himself, have you ever noticed this? The focus is far more on what he says than what is seen. You ever notice this? When God appears to Adam and Eve in the garden, he's walking after they sin. He's walking in the garden. The focus is on what is said. Or what about when God appears to Abraham when he establishes the new covenant? It's all about the covenant that God establishes. Or when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, or when he appears on Mount Sinai, or when he appears to Job in the storm theophany in Job 38, and he says, stand like a man. Think about every single time you come across God encountering his people, like real contact, the focus is always on what is Seen. Not so, pardon me, it's focused on, on what is said more so than on what is seen. For Adam and Eve, it's the rebuke that is what is said. For Abraham, it's the establishment of a covenant that there will be a people through his lineage. For Moses, it's the revelation of the personal name of God, Yahweh. Establishment and the giving of the Ten Commandments for Job. It is essentially a message over a couple or a few chapters where he says, I am God and you are not, if you want to summarize the message to Job there. The focus is what is said, not so much on what is seen. And so God's ultimate self-expression to us, I believe, is his word. And now his word becomes flesh. And that's what we mean when we say incarnation. The word becomes flesh. Right? Take that second word now. So we've got word. What about flesh? Does it strike you odd that he uses the word flesh instead of human? He could have easily said the word became human. That would have sounded easier. That would have made more sense. There's plenty of Greek words that John could have used, but he chose this one to say he came in the flesh. Why? As I've looked at this this week, this is what has struck me. When John uses the word flesh throughout the rest of the gospel, he is talking about fallen humanity. And so when it says the word didn't just become human, but he became flesh, it is a clear 
indicator that this is not just a man, but this is a man who stepped into the context of our brokenness. And he himself came to live as the light in our darkness, and our darkness could not overcome his light. The word became flesh. All right, so those are the two words. You with me so far? Now let's take that middle word, became. What does it actually mean? What actually happened when the word came down? Perhaps you might be tempted to go, as some have gone in the past, and they said, okay, the word transformed into something new. He, or maybe he, he gave up his divinity, and then he became just a man. Or some have said that he, as the word always stayed to preserve his divinity, some say. He, he appeared as a human, and so he was kind of like a phantom man. It's kind of a problem when he's eating fish after he resurrects from the dead in the Gospel of Luke, right? That would be an issue. Or some have said that he's kind of intermixes his nature with the divine. And so, are, are these options right, or are they wrong? Well, let's consider this. Um, I, I want you to know something, that when it comes to sermon illustrations, I, um, I have a knack for making sure that they are my own, or I will tell you otherwise. And here's my commitment to you, is that I will never tell you a personal story that is from somebody else and claim it as my own. But when it comes to really good illustrations like this, some of the best things are stolen. And so there's a guy named Fred Sanders. He is a great uh, theologian on the Trinity, and he actually preached on John 1.14 this week. My friend Tony gave me the clip of this, and I went, yeah, I'm stealing that. I got to show Bethesda this. And so I want you to imagine for just a moment um, the blue is the divinity of Jesus, and the red is his humanity. Now, I'm showing you what not to do, okay? So this is, this is a wrong illustration. This is how people get it wrong. And so uh, if we mix this together, we have the red and the blue, and I'm told that it takes about 45 seconds to do this, so you'll have to just bear with me as we get this going. I'll go over here to the side. <laughs> and... As it comes together, some have said, well, maybe Jesus, he has a soul that is divine, and he has a body that is human. Does that sound right? No, I don't think that sounds right. The more you do this, maybe take his humanity, take his divinity, you put it together, you start to get something that is similar to what we had before, but is this kind of, I don't know, beginning to look a little purplish to you? What do you think, August? Is that purple? Yeah? Purple, red, after this is done, son, I promise you can have this when, I, when, I'm, when I'm done with this, all right? All right, that's good enough, I think. All right, so we have kind of purple, blue-ish, red-ish, right? So the question is, what we had before, is it still here? Kind of in a manner of speaking, but if we had a red substance and a blue substance, now we have something kind of like a third substance here. Is this the way we should think about the incarnation of Jesus? Well, some of you are looking at me going, no, probably not, and I would agree with you. This becomes a problem when you realize that if Jesus mixing his humanity with his divinity into a third substance, he no longer represents you. He represents some sort of third substance that just doesn't exist. Here's how I would argue Son, August, August, August. Come here, here. Come get this. There you go. All right. Go have fun. 
here's what I would argue. I would argue that when the Word becomes flesh, He doesn't become a third thing, but that He retains what He had before. The Word becomes flesh without ceasing to be the Word. For the rest of the Gospel of John, we are clued into the fact that it is just not a man who is walking around Galilee, but he is something far more. John 10, he says, I and the Father are one. Even in the verse that we have further down here in verse 18, we are told that he is the only begotten God with the Father. You look further at John 10.30 and other passages, he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, John 14.11, that there is an indwelling from the Father to the Son. They share the same nature together. And so here's what I want you to understand. Make no mistake, the Word, when He becomes flesh, does not cease to be the Word. He continues to be divine on earth. That's the key. It is a union of two natures in one person. Our God embraces His human nature. The words of George Whitfield: Jesus was God and man in one person, that God and man might be happy together again. And so the way God has written Himself into the story is that he takes on our humanity. He has a real human soul and a human body. And yet he shares the same nature as his Father in heaven. The Athanasian Creed says, although he is God and man, is nevertheless not two, but he is one Christ. He is one, however, not by the transformation of his divinity into flesh, but by the taking up of his humanity into God. And as I read those words from the Athanasian Creed, all of the former Catholics and Lutherans said, Amen. And so you should know this, though, that though, by the way, when you read the creeds, the, the creeds we may associate with high church people or high church traditions, you should consider the creeds as truly being kind of like the, what grammar textbooks are to the English language. They define and explain the true reality. And so I want you to know, if you're here visiting or you're checking out Bethesda, know that we uphold these same creeds. The Athanasian Creed is a great explanation of this true reality that we sum it up in this way, that Jesus is one person with two natures, 100% divine and 100% human. In the example I just used a moment ago uh, with the Plato the red and blue ceased to be what they were and they became purple. I want you to consider, though, the significance of what we have just said. I did not just do that as a theoretical exercise so that you could be thinking about Plato when you walk out of here. I did it for a purpose, so that you consider the significance of your salvation. If when the word came down and took on a human nature and he intermixed and became something, some sort of third substance, I need you to think about this. Who is it really who is on that cross? He's on the cross for purple people, but he's not on the cross for you and I, right? Think about how important this is for our salvation. He has to be both fully divine and fully man. Have you ever thought about this? Why is it that he has to be this way on the cross for you? He must be divine because only God can satisfy the justice of God, and only God is unkillable. Only God can rise from the dead. Only God can swallow death and still be left standing. And only a man, he had to be fully a man, 
Not just 50%, but fully a man. For as a human, he could stand as the mediator between God and man. And as the perfect sacrifice taking on my sin and your sin, conquering it on the cross. He must be both fully, equally, in one person for your salvation to be eternally secure. But not only that, so not only consider the significance of what I just said for your salvation, but I want you to ask you to do this. Think about how this relates to how it actually changes your life over the next few days. And step into the, the, the paradoxical mystery of what is being given right here. Perhaps you're sitting there and going, Aaron, you just gave an illustration for how this is not supposed to work. So how does, so if we were to do the illustration the right way, how should it work? How should I take the Plato and form it in such a way where it would make sense in our minds? Fred Sanders again says, well, if we were going to be fair, it's not, it's kind of blasphemous to compare one-to-one like this. God's infinite. And so we, we probably need enough Plato to fill this whole room. And if we were really being, doing justice, we would have to fill the whole universe with blue Plato. And you see how just kind of insane that is. You see how kind of ridiculous that is. The truth is, it is so easy, it's so much easier to say, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, this is not what's happening. But the mystery isn't affirming that which we cannot fully explain. The Bible doesn't spell out completely how he is 100% God and 100% man. And yet we are called to affirm the reality of this paradoxical truth. The Bible is full of things like this. give you a few. Christ is fully God and he's fully man in one person. That's one. We talked about that. Second one, there is one God and three persons. We've talked about that much over the course of this last year. Here's another one. You are fully responsible to respond to the gospel, and yet God has predestined from eternity past those whom he will bring into the fold. You're responsible, and yet he predestines. Maybe we should affirm biblical truths and maybe we weren't always meant to, to define and describe the mystery in a way that makes sense to us and bring it down to earth. I think, for example, Bonhoeffer puts it in a great way. How we fail to understand when we think, when we think that the task of theology is to solve the mystery of God, to drag it down to the flat, ordinary wisdom of human experience and reason. Its sole office is to preserve the miracle as miracle, to comprehend, defend, and glorify God's mystery precisely as mystery. And so, friend, what I'm saying to you this morning is affirm the mystery of what God has done simply and glorify Him. And then after you've done that, make the move and see that this big, mysterious God is bigger than what seems to be your big mysterious circumstances. There's a God who is bigger than what you are going through. You may not know why God has brought you to the moment that you're in in your life, but he does. And I think of the words of what my own pastor, Pastor David down in Texas, when I talk with him, something that he has said to me in, in recent days and, and other times as well, is that he says to me, you understand that God put you in the boat and he knows what he has for you and he has placed you where he wants because he knows what he's doing. And so stop worrying about the storm because Jesus is in the boat with you and he's asleep. He's asleep and he's not worried about what you may, going through, it may be going through. So your mission this morning is to see that you have been called to be in the boat that he has you in. He's in the boat with you and your job is just to wake him up. Your job is just to wake him up. 
So wake him up this morning. Wake him up and pray to him. Turn to him, to this big, mysterious God who's bigger than your mysterious circumstances. He truly knows what you're going through. After all, he is human. And so this is the word who has become flesh. But secondly, and we'll move quicker through these next two, he dwells among us. This God has drawn near to us. The literal translation of that next phrase where it says, and dwelt among us would be that he pitched his tent. Immediately, if you're a good Jew, you would think of the tabernacle stories in the book of Exodus. And you would think about how God takes up residence right in the middle of his own people. He's right there in the tabernacle and camped among the Israelites. And you might be tempted to go, well, it's just a tent, so he's only there temporarily. And so Jesus only shows up temporarily to take residence, and then he leaves. Moving beyond the fact for a moment that, yes, Jesus does leave, and he does send a helper, the very presence of Jesus to be with us. His presence never leaves us. And in fact, this is the hope that we have. The one other verse in the entire Bible that says something similar about dwelling with us comes at the end of the whole story. Revelation 21.3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He has given us his spirit who is actually dwelling with us right now in this room. And at the end of all things, he will bring heaven down in the new Jerusalem, and you and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, in the new heavens and in the new earth. I love contemplating these things. During presidential election seasons, I also take the time to notice how politicians try to make themselves relatable to people. Do you ever, you ever take time to do this? Uh, you ever notice how some politicians... Um, they won't wear a jacket, but they'll, they'll roll up their sleeves and do like a stump speech, like they're get, about to get to work or something, right? Um, or you have some politicians, when they go to the Iowa uh, uh, caucuses before um, election primaries, and they'll be eating all-American food to, to, to be relatable to the people around them, give stump speeches on the fly. Uh, or you might hear speeches from candidates who talk about sayings of what people in their small hometown used to say which are probably all made up, but they say them anyways. And uh, they give you anecdotes to let you know that they're just like you. They're sticking to be relatable to get, to get your vote, right? And they know that you and I, and just kind of human nature, that we are prone to be not just attracted to the right policies, but also to those whom we have a similar identity with. And yet despite all of that, I know I have asked, I know you have asked, okay, what is that person really like when the camera's not off? What are they really like? What are, what are they really all about? When I think about this election season that we have coming up, and I observe presidential candidates, and I watch the news just like you do, the thing that always gives me hope is to know that unlike politicians, Jesus isn't just like us. He has the same nature as us. He understands us because he actually lived with his two feet in the dirt on the ground with you and I. Hebrews 3.17 says, His humanity was made like his brothers in every respect. He's not therefore unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Here's the point. I've done a handful of funerals for some of you over the course of this last year. 
It seems just even within the last three weeks or so, there's been several of us who are in this church body who have family members outside of this church body who have passed away. And for the first time, several of us are going to be celebrating our norms and our traditions with, in a new way, where someone won't be at that Christmas Eve meal. That chair will be empty for the first time. But my encouragement and my word to you this morning, if that is you in the midst of sorrow, is that before you go into despair, is that you would remember that Jesus himself experienced loss as well. Don't you remember John 10? Don't you remember where he weeps and snarls at the death of his friend who has passed away, and he sees the weakness of those who are around him? Jesus understands loss, and so he understands what you're going through. Have you experienced the frailty of your own body this year? One of our church members, uh, every time I see him, I say, how are you doing, brother? And I won't embarrass him, but you know who you are. And he always looks at me with a smile on his face, and he says, the spirit is good. The body could be better. He says that to me. The spirit is good. The body could be better. Here's what I would want to say to each of you who are dealing with pain in your own way, things that Ted prayed for earlier, that our elders pray for every single Sunday. What a thought to think that Jesus himself understands the brokenness of your body, because unlike you, he actually has experienced death all the way and then came back from it. Who do you know that can say, I know the fullness of death, but Christ who gave his body for you? What a thought to think that Christ himself, because he understands every pain that we go through, every betrayal, every injustice, we sorrow all of it because he has written himself into the story he gets us this morning. And so the incarnation is not just good news that God came down. It is also good news because he understands what you are going through even now because he actually lived here. And so the word is human. He became flesh. He drew near to us. He is near to us now even through his spirit. But the last thing, third, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. You and I are witnesses to his glory. First, the disciples were the witnesses. John himself witnesses. Actually, if you were to read in 1 John 1, 1 through 2, though the Israelites witnessed the glory of the Lord in the tabernacle, the disciples of Jesus actually saw him face to face. And John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The disciples saw the glory of Jesus as he lived on earth. And maybe you have been like me, where you read that and you go, that's so unfair. That's so unfair. Of course, they better have a ton of faith. Of course, they better be on fire for the Lord. Lord, you don't know what I'm going through. Lord, you don't know what's going on in my life. And I can't see you right now the way the disciples did. They had such an advantage. Christian, may I remind you, though, Judas heard every single one of Jesus' sermons, and he witnessed all of those miracles. And you know how that story turned out. There's plenty of people who saw Jesus and walked out on him. So seeing was not enough in and of itself. You must believe 
the word. We must believe the word. Isn't that what Jesus prayed for you and I 2,000 years ago in the high priestly prayer when he says, I don't ask for these only, speaking of the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, you and me. That's the whole point, is that you and I would believe the word. And so the original disciples witness firsthand the glory of God, and you and I take their word, and we witness Christ secondhand through what this book has to say. Don't graduate from the Bible. The Bible is the window through which you get to see your Savior day after day. And so if you've lived your life this year, and you've tried to find Jesus everywhere else aside from this book, today is a new day to begin afresh. This next year in 2024 is a new year to begin afresh and say, I want to know my Savior who not only lived and died for me, but knows me better than I know myself and wants to speak to me, not just sing, but the speaking of the word that will get through to me. And this is the glory of the only begotten Son. You might look down at your Bible for just a moment in John 1.14 and you'll notice if you have the ESV, it'll say the only Son. And IV, others will say the same thing. Why have I said the only begotten Son? Or think about it this way. John 3, 16. We all know it. Or do we? For God so loved the world that he gave his who? Only or only begotten? Only begotten Son, right? That's, if you grew up doing Awana, New King James, right? That's it right there. An only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I think you're King James. I think this is where the King James nails it here. It is not just that Jesus is the only son. It is not just that he is the unique son. He is those things. But he is the one who is eternally born in eternity past from the Father. Because of what this verse says, how do I know that Jesus has been, as the theologians say, eternally generated, eternally born? He doesn't begin to exist, but he always was proceeding from the Father, using language to try to describe this reality. He's eternally born from the Father. How do I know this? Because of what the rest of the verse says. This is the first time in the Bible where we were shown that it is not just Jesus the Son, but He is from the Father. The Son who is from the Father. The Eastern Church Fathers talked about how the the Divine Father was the fount of divinity. And the second person is the eternal son who comes from the father, eternally generated, eternally from. He never begins, but he's from the father. The Nicene Creed. Maybe you've heard the Nicene Creed, but you've never understood it in this light before. Watch this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only son of God, eternally begotten of the father. God from God. Light from light. True God from his Father, true God from true God, begotten, not made. He's not created, so don't mistake me. He's not created, but he eternally is born of the Father, being one with the Father. And I read this, and I will tell you that as we have been walking through these passages, these 14 verses over the last three or whatever, how many weeks it's been, the thing that gets me is how marvelous, how awe-inspiring, how you could not have thought of all of this by yourself. That there is this God who has revealed himself to us in this way. And he says, I want you to know who my dad is in heaven. And I've condescended down so that you would know him. 
You couldn't have made this up on your own. And this is the one who, in a miraculous way, has written himself into the story. And our verse ends, and he says that this one who is from his father is full of grace and truth. And his grace is that he has come to you and I to reveal the father to us. We've seen his grace all throughout this passage this morning. It's not just that he's full of grace, but he gives it to us, unworthy sinners. He's in the boat with you this morning. He's present and he's not going anywhere. And he's here full of grace to give it to you. And we will look more at what that means tonight. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.